0: you could take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 3. We're going to continue our series. I'm going to ask Nick Taylor to come and read for us. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Thank you, Nick. Sometimes we avoid asking some really hard questions. We think that we'll be better off if we can just ignore them. Sometimes we dodge spiritual questions altogether. So we, we might try to fool ourselves in and, and, and just pretend you know, I don't even have to ask questions of religion and spirituality because that's for religious people. They can ask those questions and I don't have to. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about those sorts of things. But then occasionally, for a variety of reasons, we come into a confrontation where we really do have to ask and answer some hard questions. And we've been looking at some of those questions in a series that we've called Snapshots of Grace. And we've gone through kind of looking at different different aspects of our salvation. And we've kind of in a roundabout way, asked some very difficult questions. We started off the first week asking the question, what if I am guilty before God? If I'm guilty before God, there really is no hope for me. I'm not going to escape God's justice. I'm not going to get out on some sort of technicality. I'm guilty. But we've looked at this snapshot of God's grace in that in the courtroom, if you will, of God, we've been declared not guilty. We've been credited with righteousness because we are in Christ. We're not guilty. There's no condemnation. We ask then another question, and that is, what if I am estranged from or enemies with God? What if God's not, what if I'm not on on friendly terms and if that's true, there's really no hope of me like making all this right. What do I have to offer? And the fact is that was or is your predicament for, for everybody. Our relationship with the Lord is broken with the God who made us. But because of God's grace, if you're in Christ, there's no irreconcilable differences. You've been made a friend of God. When even you were once an enemy. What a snapshot of God's grace. Reconciliation. We ask the question, what, what if I'm not in the family of God? What if, what if I'm not a part of his family? There would be no hope for, for me. Like, how am I ever going to get into that family? Well, that was, or maybe even still is your predicament. That that's where your that, that is your condition, or it was your condition But if you're in Christ, the the snapshot of grace we we, we saw there is we've been adopted into the family of God through the work that Christ has done. And now we are in Jesus Christ. God took the initiative in his grace to bring us into his family. We saw another snapshot of God's grace when we asked the question, what if I'm enslaved? What if I am a slave or in bondage to sin? Well, there really is no hope. There's no hope of me. Like on my own, breaking free of the slavery of sin, somehow running away from it all. That is my condition. But we've been redeemed. We've been set free because we're in Christ Jesus. We were in slavery, in bondage to our own sin, and there's no like self-help strategies that are going to get us out of that bondage. But Christ came, sent from God, in his grace, to free us from our sin. And last week on Easter Sunday, we asked the question, what if I am a dead man, spiritually speaking? What if you're a dead woman, spiritually speaking? You're not alive to things of God. What hope is there for you to somehow generate life on your own, bring yourself back to life if you're dead spiritually? And we looked and said, that is an accurate description of 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 who we once were, but we looked at the snapshot of God's grace where he, according to Ephesians and Colossians, makes us alive. And and remember, we saw because Jesus has risen and we are in Jesus, we will rise also. We've been made alive spiritually. I've wanted our heads to get around kind of the, the different angles that the Bible comes at this, the different pictures, the word pictures, the snapshots that help us understand grace a little bit better. But I wanted to go far beyond just our head and understanding some concepts. I think the pictures are meant for our hearts to be affected by this, so that we actually not just know and understand and comprehend the grace of God, but that we feel it and we appreciate it. We, We understand, we feel the bleak picture of our past without Christ. And we know and we understand and can appreciate the help that we have right now because we're in Christ. And we also have this future, the awesome prospect of our future, because we are in Jesus Christ and nothing can separate us from him. We called it snapshots of grace because we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing that we kind of trot out and go, here's what I did, and kind of I met God halfway. It's nothing we've deserved. It's all of God's grace. This is humbling, but then that's not a bad thing because Proverbs would tell us pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit comes before a fall. And God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So if this series has done in your heart, I think what it's done in my heart is it's humbled me to recognize who I would be and who I am apart from Christ. But that's better enabled me to appreciate and receive God's grace in my life. I want us to look at one more Picture, and I want to ask one more question, and that question is, What if I am not clean before God? What if I am not clean, or at least clean enough before God? And today we're going to look and, and answer kind of that question by looking at the subject of atonement. And atonement's one of those words in the Bible that comes up again and again. There's a lot of different angles we could take, so we are limiting kind of one view of. Kind of even by asking this question, what does it mean to be clean before God? Our consciences, if they're, if they're functioning in a right way, our consciences are going to make us ask that question, what does it mean to be clean before God? And am I clean before him? And there's plenty of places in God's word that we go to that also help us kind of feel that need to be clean before God, like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, where Jesus is teaching and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. What a promise. They will see God. But it's blessed are the pure in heart. Am I clean before God? Is that meant for me? Second Peter chapter 3 says, based on this promise of God, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. At peace, without spot, without blemish. That means unstained. No stain, no stain of sin. You're clean before God. James 1:27, a, a verse that means a lot to even this congregation in particular, because it, it tells us religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And To keep oneself unstained from the world. That's just a a high, high bar. Keep yourself from being stained or polluted or corrupted by the world. What if I am not clean before God? I I want us to understand this issue of being clean before God by kind of in, in two parts. I want us first to take a look at kind of our unclean world our unclean world. Because I think we'll understand this whole question and understand what this is all talking about and where scripture is going in this by understanding our world and our world is unclean. We live in a world where physically we understand we could start there, we could start physically. We recognize this world is uh, an unclean world. What do I mean? Well, how many germs are there in the world and how many of those are like problematic to your health? Walk through, so I, I was walking through the grocery store and it just dawned on me, kind of as I was thinking through what I was talking about today, I'm walking through and I'm wondering, how many products are in this grocery store? And then I went to the pharmacy, how many products in this pharmacy are solely for the fact that we live in an unclean world? And there's all sorts of problems, and so there's all sorts of soaps and all sorts of cleansers and all kinds of things that will help us manage this world that physically we know is unclean. Recently, I had to get... Some immunizations for a trip i 'm taking with uh, a few of the members here in this church to, to Africa and uh, why do you get those? Well, you recognize there are some nasty diseases out there, and your body and my body may not be may not be immune to them, and so to protect yourself against that, you get immunizations. I wonder how many government agencies, and, and whether you're like a, a small government or a big government person, it's kind of beside the point. I wonder how many government agencies there are that deal with like this whole issue of sanitation and cleanliness and pollution. And if you've ever been in another place where nobody cared about pollution and nobody cared about sanitation, you're, you're kind of grateful for that effort as a society to at least think about these things and work on them. Think about the time you, you wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, disinfect surfaces, purify your water, and then, oh, what are you putting in your body? Is it all natural? Are you sure? What about the GMOs? Are you, are you eating any of that? Is it, is it as healthy? Is it truly organic? Are, so you can see, even in our own culture, what, what we eat and how we make sure things are clean, we, we think about these things all the time. And it's not just our own culture. There's anywhere you go around the world. It's a pretty fascinating thing to see all the, all the rituals and customs of cleanliness. All the ways, and, and, and people around the world may do it different than uh, North America, like we do it. But what's going on there? We're, we're hardwired as human beings to think about a world that is not clean, it isn't just hygiene when we think of being clean or unclean. There's actually, there's actually a moral component to this too, a right and wrong kind of component. And again, I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We live in an unclean world. There are things that, and I, I'm not going to do it just out of, out of shock value, there are things that if I begin to talk about them, they are so awful. They're so terrible. And you would just be horrified that they're happening in this world. You would think like things like that should never happen. And we would all be so uncomfortable. And, and actually what they might do to know those things are happening on, on this planet They would make us just feel even, as a group, we would feel unclean knowing those things are going on. We would would feel unclean if that were to happen in our world, if that were to happen in our country, if that were to be going on in our state, if that were going on in our city, in our development, in our family, in our home. It isn't just that we would think like, yeah, that's wrong. We would feel like that just is corrupting. That just makes us all feel a sense of guilt and shame. It leaves a stain. Even nations can feel this at times. So many of you know I enjoy history, and I was reading a passage this week from Lincoln's second inaugural address. I was reading about kind of reconstruction of our country after the Civil War, and listen to what President Lincoln said. Talking about slavery and what it meant for our nation— 150 years ago. He says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war, the civil war, would speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth that's been piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, As was said 3,000 years ago, still still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What President Lincoln was putting his finger on is a stain you could even feel as a nation for something done. So we can talk about like our, our world and we can talk about our nation, but this gets really, really personal. It gets individual. It gets individual in the sense that you and I, make decisions that become habits and patterns of living that actually are so harmful and would bring so much shame upon us and the people we know. It isn't just out there. We know we do things that are not just wrong, they're shameful, they should never be done things that are wrong can begin to feel like this isn't just like something I did, but it actually is a part of who I am and I feel awful about it. So there may be something you did or it could be that there's something done to you. And it may have happened days ago. It may have happened weeks or months or years. Some of these things are decades old. and It seems like it's hard to outrun the shame. Maybe there's something like most of us have families where there's so much going on in our family tree that, it, that is so complicated and sometimes so wrong. Maybe you grew up in a family where some story would be told and then there was like this, some question would be asked by, by an, an innocent kid and, and then quickly you knew, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to bring that up. We don't talk about that. And quickly you learn the family rules are, that is just too troubling and we don't talk about it. We just have, like, turn our back on all that we don't even want to think about because that, that whole incident or episode or circumstance or event just brings so much shame on us. I think one of the things that is so, so challenging about sexual sin is that it often travels in this very place of causing so much shame, causing so much embarrassment and guilt, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to confess. I think a, we know our bodies are meant for, for something more to, to glorify the Lord and when we use those in ways that God never intended us for, for, for us to use them, we feel that. We don't, we don't just feel like, I think I did something wrong. It's like, I, is there something in me that now is like contaminated or corrupted or defiled or impure or not clean? You might remember, I, re- I remember in uh, high school and I, I think in college as well reading the story of the Scarlet Letter and just how, how one society or at least how an author depicted how a society might handle a particular sin and the shame brought and just kind of the overwhelming nature of that shame. But I think, well, here we are in 2019 and I, some of these things, I mean, we, f- we find new things to shame people for. And we might do it a little bit different than they did 100 years ago. But, but have we actually escaped? No, no we haven't. We, we still don't know how to handle our shame. We still don't know how to handle the embarrassment and the, the sense of not being clean. We still don't know how to handle it. So what can help us? What can actually cleanse us if we're living in this unclean world? So I, I want us to get that picture in our mind. But I also want to kind of move into the world of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, because there's another picture that we find in the Old Testament, and that is not just our unclean world, but the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is in Leviticus 16. And we won't go through the whole chapter, but I do kind of want to walk step by step, because this particular ritual, this particular day, the particular events that go along with this are are so helpful in us understanding what it means to atone for sin or be clean before God, and what were the processes. And even as we hear them, we're going to have to work harder because maybe you have a Western mindset and some of these rituals seem like, man, those seem like a long time ago. I can't imagine anybody doing these things, but let's listen to this this scripture specifically in Leviticus 16. And, and again, you, you're welcome to read it. You're welcome to follow along or you could read it later. But the Day of Atonement went something like this. Aaron, who is the high priest of the people of Israel, would take off his normal priestly garments and then he would wash and then he would put on special garments for the sacrifices which were going to bring him into the Holy of Holies. So that's how the, how the, the Day of Atonement would begin. In verses 3 and 5 we're told that then Abraham would animals would be brought to him a bull and two goats and all of those are going to be part of this sacrifice. The the bull in particular for Abraham would be a sin offering and he would slaughter the bull and he would offer that for his own sin. But then there are two goats and those would be for the sin of the people the people of Israel. And, And one of those goats would be killed, so they would, they would cast lots, and one of those would, or they would roll the dice, if you will. They, one of those goats would be slaughtered, and that would be a, a sin offering for the people of God You sacrificed, and that blood was taken and sprinkled on the altar, the, the mercy seat. But another goat was not killed. Again, we have two goats. The goat that was not killed would symbolically bear the sin. So you can imagine the, the high priest or maybe other priest kind of transferring the sin of the people and, and putting that on the goat. And that goat would be driven out of the camp. There's tradition and stories that often they, they so didn't want that goat coming back because it represented all their sin and they really wanted to maintain the picture of it being driven away, never to be seen again. that Often they would like push the goat off a cliff just because they did not want that goat around anymore. And we have even our word, the scapegoat. So one is killed, one takes away the sin. And this day of atonement goes on. Aaron enters the tent of meeting removes his linen garments, washes again and puts on the normal priestly garments. There's so many details to this ritual and I'm just hitting the highlight. But at the end of Leviticus 16, we're told exactly what's going on. Leviticus 16 verse 29, the writer says, this shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict, or another good translation would be, humble yourselves You shall do no work, either the the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, what what was all that ritual about? The one goat killed and one goat driven away. On this day, you shall be cleansed. Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord. That was our question from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And, And there's something even that strikes you that one, this seems like not complete because they have to keep doing this every year. So it seems like even that seems a a little bit temporary, like can this really go on again and again and again? In another year, we've got another day of atonement where sin has to be dealt with again, and here's another year and sin has to be dealt with again. We begin to get, so we've got a picture of an unclean world and the day of atonement, and so that begins to press on our heart, and even if... So, so I, I think about it. Even sort of four months into the year, if I could live the rest of this year, and like not do anything that would embarrass myself or my family or my friends, if I could do everything right so that I never had an impure thought, never had an impure motive, never had an impure action, if somehow I could pull all that together, which I can't, and you couldn't either. I would still be living in a world where in a moment's notice I could, because of what I'm a part of, because of who I'm connected to, I could find many, many reasons to be shamed. So what do I do? The way one writer wrote, Greg Kokel said this, the feeling of purity eludes us. Most of us have never, ever felt completely clean since our contact with our own sin every day. When a person has always been dirty it's hard for him to know what it might feel like to be completely clean. So how can I? How can I be clean before God? What becomes very evident, what becomes very evident is like being clean before God isn't going to come from me. It's not as if I can run out these doors, some, somehow hire a high-caliper PR campaign a company that could manage my image. Because even if they could manage my image, it still wouldn't do anything about the stain I feel for my sin. What what, what can I do? This is going to have to be initiated by God. Just like the bulls and goats were in Leviticus 16. I, there's, there's not enough volunteer hours that I can do to like, kind of rehab my name that's been trashed. Especially when God knows everything and sees everything. And whatever could make me clean, whatever I would need to be clean before God would have to be, like, it'd have to come from God, and it would also have to be pretty personal. So it's hard for me to imagine anything that would, like, stain my whole life and being, that I could deal with that in something like, oh, yeah, here's how you deal with, like, that sense of shame, you just go fill out this online form. It'll take you about, I don't know, a minute and a half, and then everything will feel good inside. You know it's not going to work like that. You know it's not going to be as simple as like, yeah, you just, you know, you pay a fine. This is the way these things go. I mean, there may be a part of dealing with the wrong, but I don't know that that even gets close to dealing with the shame. What, are you going to write a letter, cut a check? It's just not, it doesn't really add up. It, It would have to be something personal. Even Even as significant as religious rituals are, rituals only take you so far. You need something real. And and while while you're at it, it it would have to be costly as well. If we're talking about fines or cutting checks, you're not going to be able to like think in small terms like this is all the sin you've ever done and all the sin that everybody's ever done. What could deal with that? This would be costly. I'm out of options on my own. I cannot be clean before God. You cannot be clean before God. On your own. It's at that moment that we kind of remind ourselves, okay, this series is snapshots of grace. So I don't deserve to be clean before God. If we're talking about what I deserve. I deserve his wrath. I deserve his judgment. That's what I deserve. But this unclean world with all of its germs and contagions, it's telling us a true story. This world is unclean. And the Day of Atonement, it's pointing to something really, really significant. It's pointing in the right direction. We need cleansing and all this talk of blood and cleansing and atonement and carrying away of sins. Hebrews and Colossians both say, that's just shadow. What you're reading in the Old Testament is just the shadow. And trace the shadow and see where it goes. And where it points to is Jesus Christ. And we just sang about him a moment ago, that in his life, there was never a trace or stain of sin so he lives the life and he has, n- he has nothing that his conscience is guilty over. He has nothing that would stick to him that he couldn't actually kind of find his way out of it. He never has an impure thought, an unclean action, an unclean attitude. And that's why John the Baptist, when, when he sees Jesus, help arrives. God is like coming to this world, dealing with our sin, dealing with our impurity, dealing with our uncleanness. Do you you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He says, behold the Lamb of God in John 1. He takes away the sin of the world. Do you wonder, I, I have to wonder if the people thought of the Day of Atonement when there was a a goat that was driven out of the camp and took away the sin of Israel. and Maybe they're putting that connection together or maybe they're thinking of Isaiah 53 where it says, the Lord laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. When Jesus begins to minister and begins to teach, it's so interesting to me as I was reading the miracles of Jesus. So Jesus would heal a person of leprosy. But interesting, often the way it would be said and the way it would be recorded is not just that he healed them and he made them well, but they made them clean. They were cleansed from their leprosy. And when Jesus would cast out demons, it wasn't just a power encounter. What it often says is he cast out the unclean spirit. I think he's giving us a picture of what happens when he comes on the scene. Everything that is unclean is dealt with. Even the unclean spirits are driven away. And he is making all things new, all things clean. When Jesus comes, even on the cross, something captures our attention. So this one who has no stain of sin hangs on a cross and listens to people mock him. And something about that hit me this year, all the insults and all the mockery and all the shame. Everybody runs. Nobody wants to really be identified with Jesus. And so he hangs in isolation. But as he's hanging there on the cross, he is taking not just our guilt, the wrong we've done, but he is bearing our shame. We should be the ones that are mocked. We should be the ones feeling the shame. And he endures it all. First John 4 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation or some translations say the atoning sacrifice. So he bears God's wrath for us and this makes us clean. This gives us atonement. God who's personally offended, God who's holy, cannot look on sin. But Jesus takes the wrath and the punishment for our sin it's so personal. So it's just interesting to see Jesus, when he dies on the cross, it's so personal how the payment for sin works. So it's not as if God says, I'm going to take away your sin and I'm going to show you how I'll do that by showing you a lunar eclipse. Look at that. Look at an electricity storm. Look at, look at this cloud formation and see your sin is taken away. That's not the way it works. It gets so personal. There's no comet, no meteor. It's a man, it's a human being taking our sin. That's why 1 John 1, 9, as personal as this is, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. That's great news. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2 and verse 1, My little children... I'm writing, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And we go, Oh, well, that's a problem because I'm going to sin. But if anyone does sin, John anticipates that. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also the world. God initiates making us clean. God personally comes making us clean. This is so costly. We took the blood of Christ. Well, we knew it'd have to be costly. Sins past, present, future. Sins intentional and unintentional. Sins small and great. Sins from every person on every continent, all generations, who will believe in Jesus Christ. First John seven says, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we have words. We have words that we say. So we'll talk about in our, our spiritual condition apart from Christ, where we're dead and we're enslaved. And we'll use words like we're guilty and we're broken and we're wrong. But without Christ, we have other words we need to use like unclean and impure and defiled and corrupt. But God was working through his grace all along to deal with that. The verses Nick read earlier in Titus 3 we ourselves were once foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to various passions. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And listen to the words. This is grace, right? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, new life, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Earlier in Titus, it says, He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I think of Bible characters like David, and when David had so messed up and was feeling the stain of sin, feeling something like, I am impure, I am unclean before God. Psalm 51, and I shared these words at our men's breakfast yesterday. David said things like, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from me. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me. Create in me, God, a a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. What David knew he needed because of Jesus. We don't just know we need, we've experienced in Jesus Christ exactly what David was wishing for. He's saying, create in me a clean heart and that's what we have because of what Jesus has done. That's the cleansing we know. He's praying, wash me And we know that cleansing comes through Jesus shedding his blood. So in a moment, even though we don't have like words to adequately express all that's in our heart because of this, we will sing a song like, what can wash away my sin? And then the refrain will come, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could ever make me whole again from the stain that sin leaves? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the actual spiritual biography of the entire church, all of us, as that we had all been stained by sin, much like the church in Corinth. Paul tells that church in Corinth, much like he could tell us, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, Men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, none of those inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Over the last few weeks and and hopefully today you've heard snapshot after snapshot of grace, grace, grace. Here's another way of looking at it. God's grace. Here's another way of looking at God's grace. And if you've yet to come to that place where you've put your faith in Jesus, would you do that today? You say, I I don't even know like the first steps of what it would mean to have a relationship with God. Well, would you you find one of us, would you find a pastor or someone with a name tag or a friend and, and talk with them, ask them about this? Would you... We, we love to walk with you in taking those first steps of living as one who doesn't just know about grace as a concept, but knows it personally. And I have to say, at, at the end, as we've looked at God's grace from so many different angles, if you have trusted in Jesus, then it's time for you to live like it. It's time for you to live like it. Grace tells you that because you are in Jesus, you're not under condemnation. So don't be in despair Not guilty has been pronounced over you. Because you are in Jesus, you are friends with God, so talk to him. Because you are in Christ Jesus, because you've been shown grace, you've been part of his family, so talk to your heavenly father. Pray to him. Live like you've experienced this grace. Because you have tasted grace, you are not in bondage anymore, so live free and don't, don't submit to anything that would put you back into slavery because you are in Christ. You are alive. So live an abundant life because you are in Christ Jesus, because you've experienced grace. You are clean. You are clean. So pursue purity and holiness. Live live like it. Live in line with the truth, not a lie. And church, I, I hope that this series so impresses on our heart that we would never, ever trust our own righteousness. Not not where we've been. Our best efforts could never have accomplished all of what Christ has accomplished. Only Jesus could. So you are not on a treadmill of earning your salvation. By God's grace, you're not trying to earn anything. You've been shown grace. Can we thank God for it this morning? Our Lord, we praise you for all the different ways you went about giving us pictures and symbols and rituals to cement on our heart what it means to know amazing grace, to know the sweet sound of that. I pray that we would live in light of it. I pray for the person that may be wrestling. They, they may even question whether this is too good to be true to receive all this that they've never earned, never worked for. Open our eyes and I pray that the Spirit would teach us about what it means to be recipients of this kind of grace. Lord, all this we ask in the name of our Savior who gained all this for us and so much more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.